Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn me to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. Matthew 5, we're going to begin by reading the first 12 verses, this passage of Scripture, known, of course, as the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. This is what the Scriptures say. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people say, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Stan Benkowski lives in uh, uh, Sunnyvale, California right now. But he grew up in Detroit. And one day when he was eight years old, his father came home from work and announced that he was taking Stan to a game at Briggs Stadium to watch the Tigers play. His first night baseball game. They arrived early enough. They parked on Michigan Avenue. Didn't, you don't have to pay to park on Michigan Avenue. At least you didn't back then. And then they went into the stadium. At the second inning, during the second inning, it started to rain. And a few minutes after that, it just started to pour. And it poured and poured. 20 minutes later, after it started pouring, the announcers came on and said, Game's canceled, everybody. You can go home. Uh, Stan and his dad decided to walk around a little bit, the stands, and the stands hoping that the rain would let up a little bit. After an hour, and when they stopped selling beer, Stan's dad said, all right, let's go, it's time to go, we'll, we'll make a break for it. So they ran out to the car. They had at the time a 1948 black sedan, and the driver's door didn't work. So if you wanted to drive the car, you had to climb in the passenger side and scoot across that big bench in the front. Everybody should have a car like that at some point in time in their life. It builds character. So they got to, got to the car, and uh, uh, Stan's dad was fumbling with the keys to unlock it, and he dropped the keys in the gutter, and he reached down to pick them up, and he did a gust of wind, came, blew his hat, his fedora, down the street. Stan ran after it. He grabbed the hat, and by the time he got back to this car, his dad was in the driver's seat sitting there, and they were both just soaking wet. And uh, Stan handed his hat to his father, and his father took it and put it on, and you know what happened. It had been out in the rain, and the water just poured down Stan's dad. Uh, Stan says that his father made a sound that he did not recognize. He roared, and at first he thought he was angry, but then he realized he was roaring with laughter. And they sat there in their car, and they laughed and laughed and laughed hysterically for 25 minutes. Uh, here's what Stan said. I had never heard my dad laugh like that before, and I never did again. It was a raw explosion that came from somewhere deep within a force he had always kept damned up. It's a good sound to hear families laughing. 
It's a, it's a good sound to hear parents and their children and grandparents laughing together. It's a healthy whole sound. There's a sting in this tale, though. Listen to how Stan ended it. Years later, when I spoke to my dad about that night and how he remembered his laughter, he insisted that it had never happened. Sons and daughters long to connect with their fathers. They long to know their fathers. They want to be part of their father's world. More importantly, they want to please their fathers. You, you can hear that uh, in, on playgrounds. You can hear it on playgrounds with little children and their dads are there and they say over and over again, those little kids, watch me, daddy, watch me, daddy, watch me, watch me jump, watch me swing, watch me climb, watch me do everything um, with this longing for approval. And I don't know that it ever goes away. And so it's fitting that the Lord Jesus would begin his longest recorded sermon uh, standing in front of the people announcing a word of approval, a word of pleasure. Blessings! Blessings to you! Here I am, a representative of the kingdom of heaven, in fact, the king in the kingdom of heaven, and I have come to earth, the kingdom of heaven is near, and my word to you is blessings! Blessings from God, approval, approval from God. I have come as the king to conquer the world, but I come first with this message of grace and joy. Blessings, blessings to you. And then he describes in these three chapters this sort of life that pleases God. It's not an easy life. It's a difficult life. It is full of opposition and difficulty and challenge and temptations. It's not an easy life, but it is a blessed life. Today, we're going to start talking about the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to work our way through it in the next few weeks. And there's three things that I want to do with you this morning as we begin to talk about the Sermon on the Mount. First, we're going to talk about the number of approaches that people have had to this passage. Some of them are helpful. Some of them are less helpful. I want to talk to you about why people have approached the Sermon on the Mount the way they have. And we'll call that part reading the Sermon on the Mount, if you're using the note sheet Then secondly, we're going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And why is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew the way it is? What was Matthew trying to communicate by putting these three chapters where he did? And then third, we're going to talk about the blessed life. We're going to talk about these uh, poetic words that Jesus used to introduce his sermon. This is the sort of life that on my best days, I want to live. And on my normal days, I want to want to live. So that's our plan this morning. Let's start, though, immediately by talking about reading the Sermon on the Mount. Craig Blomberg wrote a book about uh, Matthew, and he says that there are 36 that he could find, 36 different approaches that people have taken to the Sermon on the Mount. Should only take me about an hour and a half to work my way through them. So I'm not going to this morning. But I want to share with you just four, four ways that people have thought about or looked at the Sermon on the Mount. The first one is, some people think about the Sermon on the Mount as a guide to social reform. Here is Jesus, he's giving us a set of ethics, and if everybody in society followed these ethics, it would change things. That's true, it would, but it would transform society and things would be different. One of the great proponents of this view was a, the Russian uh, writer Leo Tolstoy. 
Tolstoy said, uh, you know, if uh, because Jesus told us not to swear oaths, we should stop swearing people in when they have to testify in court. And he said, because Jesus told us to uh, uh, shun evil, to turn from evil, uh, we should, we don't need to have police officers and we don't need to have an army because everybody's going to pursue the right. Um, kind of a defund the police movement long before today, right? Um, if we just followed the Sermon on the Mount, everything would be fine. Everything would be good. Uh, uh, society would be healed and whole. It would be beautiful and wonderful. Um, he's right about that. But the problem is that this view is wildly optimistic about human nature. In fact, as we'll see in a few minutes, Jesus said the key to really understanding the Sermon on the Mount is starting by recognizing that you can't obey the Sermon on the Mount. You just do not have in your own power the ability to do the things that Jesus has said. You can pretty much guarantee anybody who says that they live according to the Sermon on the Mount and they're successfully doing it, you can pretty much guarantee they haven't read it. And uh, the other problem, of course, with this view is that the sermon is aimed at his disciples. It's aimed at people who have already committed to following him. You can see that in verse uh, 1 and 2, actually, uh, verse 1, that he sees the crowd, he goes on the mountains, and his disciples draw near and he teaches them. The crowds are in the background, the disciples are in the foreground, he's talking to the crowd, the disciples, while the crowd's over here. He's talking here in this sermon to people who are already committed to following him. So this is not a good guide to social reform, though if more people tried to follow it, we would applaud. Uh, here's a second uh, a way to approach the Sermon on the Mount. Some people, and this actually our Anabaptist friends uh, 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 follow this, that the Sermon on the Mount are more inclined to follow this. The Sermon on the Mount is the ultimate expression of Jesus' teaching, that it's the ultimate expression of biblical teaching. This, these are the three most important chapters in the Bible, and they guide us in everything. And if there's any other passages in the Bible that are in tension with this passage, then we ignore those or, or downplay those and magnify this message. These are the red letters. They matter the most. The problem with that view, though, is that um, whole of the Bible is Jesus' words, are Jesus' words. Uh, the book of Romans and the book of Ephesians and the book of Esther and the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of Genesis are just as much from Jesus as the Sermon on the Mount is. We don't have a uh, more inspired part of Scripture and less inspired parts of Scripture. Um, this is, as helpful as this is, this isn't everything that Jesus has said. So uh, we, we look far and wide for how we're to live in order to please God. Here's a third view, a third approach. A third approach is that the Sermon on the Mount is directions for the kingdom, directions for the kingdom. Now, one of the most important themes in the Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom of heaven. Remember, Jesus said, repent, this is the beginning of his ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, and the kingdom of heaven is mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount. Some people have approached Matthew and, and recognized, here's Jesus, he's the king, and he is offering to the Jews uh, at this time the kingdom. 
The kingdom of heaven is near. Here's the kingdom. And this, the Sermon on the Mount, is part of his offer of the kingdom. Here's the kingdom that I've come to bring. And here are the rules for living in the kingdom that I have come to bring. And what happened, as you read Matthew, is the Jews rejected Jesus. And because they rejected Jesus, they rejected the kingdom. And so these chapters are for the kingdom. Someday Jesus is going to return and he's going to establish his kingdom. And these chapters will be very important in that kingdom. But they're less important to us now because we're not in that kingdom uh, the way that Jesus was offering it to the Jews. That's what some people have said. Here's what I think is wrong with that approach or the problem with it. There's a lot in the Sermon on the Mount that describes uh, circumstances that I don't think are going to be true during the kingdom. For example, during the kingdom, when Jesus is reigning on the earth, are we really going to have trouble with people persecuting us for his name's sake? And during the kingdom, are we really going to have to, as Matthew 6 warns us about, Jesus warns us about, are we going to have be tempted to worry because we don't have enough food or clothing in the kingdom? Uh, are we going to have a lot of enemies that we're going to have to love and pray for in the kingdom? There's just too much that applies to the here and now for this to be just about the there and then. So I don't think that's the best approach. A final approach that some people have had to the Sermon on the Mount, and this is one that our Lutheran brothers and sisters tend to take, is that the Sermon on the Mount is the ultimate standard and its purpose is to convict us of our sin. This is Paul says that the Old Testament law uh, uh, serves this purpose at times, that the Sermon on the Mount is to show us how far short of God uh, God's standards we fall. Now, on the one hand, who doesn't feel the weight of this? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you are angry with your brother or sister, you are worthy of hell. If you look at a woman lustfully, you have committed adultery with her. I mentioned already, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Is there anybody in the room who doesn't feel the weight of those standards? and feel the challenge of that. The problem with viewing it just, though, as an impossible standard is that Jesus seems to actually expect us to obey these commands and to make progress in them. I think it would be better for us, instead of thinking them of these as impossible standards, we should be thinking about them the way a golfer approaches par. Some of you have played golf before. You know what par is. Par is, of course, the standard for how many times you would hit the ball on, on a particular hole. Uh, if you hit the ball perfectly each time, this is how many times, how many strokes it should take you to hit the ball in the hole. That's par. And every golfer I know is motivated by par. They walk up to the tee thinking that this is going to be the hole in which they are going to get par. I... Uh, um, was on my high school golf team. It was a eight-man team. I was ranked 14th on the team. And um, I, I would go up, it's time to practice, and, and you approach the tee. What's par? No one ever said this, but they could have legitimately said, I say, what's par? They say, Divinity, it doesn't matter. You're never going to come close. Why are you asking? You might as well be asking the difference between here and San Francisco because you're not going to hit the ball there either, right? But every golfer I know thinks about par on every hole. Professional golfers come close, 
uh, actually, uh, they meet it. Some of them beat him, beat par. Every golfer dreams about this. This is the ideal, the Sermon on the Mount is the ideal to which we strive as followers of Jesus. I think that the failure of some of these approaches to the Sermon on the Mount, they fail because they don't take into account the sermon within the book of Matthew. Why did Matthew include this sermon? What is he trying to communicate about the Lord Jesus by including this sermon in this place the way he did? Let's talk secondly here about the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. If you were to sit down and read Matthew, perhaps you've noticed this. Matthew, from chapter 5 until Passion Week, until the crucifixion, alternates in his book between teaching sections and miracle sections. So there's sermon and then an account of miracles, and then a sermon and an account of miracles. Five times in the book of Matthew, this happens. This is how Matthew organizes his material. Uh, and, and the Sermon on the Mount is one of those five long sermons or teaching passages in the book of Matthew. What is Matthew trying to accomplish? Why did he do that? Well, remember that uh, as we have been reading Matthew, uh, I have suggested to you that the theme of Matthew could, can be found in the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all, all of my commandments, everything I have commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. All of those alls. Jesus has all authority over all nations. He is worthy of all of our allegiance. We obey all of his commands, and he's with us always. Now, that's the theme, a theme that we're tracing through the book of Matthew. And actually, the Sermon on the Mount is here to aid that theme. Let me show you how. All authority. Look at the end of Matthew, chapter 7. Right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, after Jesus teaches, look what the passage says. Matthew seven twenty-eight. It says, the text, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he taught as one who had authority. He's got all authority and not as their teachers of the law. Um, Do you remember how I have talked about how Jesus in the book of Matthew is kind of walking in the steps of the nation of Israel? He is in his personal life living out their history. So um, in the book of Genesis, it tells us the story of how the nation of Israel went down into Egypt. And Matthew too says that God sent Uh, Jesus and Joseph and Mary down into Egypt. And then God called the nation of Israel up out of Egypt and he called Jesus up out of Egypt. And the nation of Israel went into the water, the Red Sea, and then they went into the wilderness where they were tested by God for 40 years. And Jesus went into the waters of baptism. Then he went into the wilderness and was tested by God for 40 days. And Jesus went into the nation uh, and went into the, the land just like Joshua and conquered the diseases and sicknesses and illnesses. And Joshua had gone into the land Uh, leading the Israelites and conquered them militarily. Moses, in the Old Testament, goes up to the mountain and gives the law. And here, Jesus goes up to the mountain and he gives his teaching. The Sermon on the Mount here is in part to establish the authority of Jesus, to demonstrate it, to show it in what he says and how he teaches. Or maybe Matthew has in mind, not Moses, but this passage in Isaiah 2. It's funny, Matthew says Jesus went up to the mountainside. This is not the Alps. 
But he, he, some sort of elevated position, Matthew uses this word, I think maybe to plug into Isaiah 2, 3, many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. Jesus is the presence of God on the planet and he is teaching. He is teaching with all authority because he's God's spokesman on the earth. Think about another one of these all words, all allegiance. Jesus said, make disciples. How are you supposed to make disciples? Baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Where do we find everything that Jesus has commanded us to do? We find it in the Sermon on the Mount. Here it is. Here is what Jesus commanded us to do. And, and if we are faithful in making disciples like he commanded the church to do, we are to teach people to obey what he has commanded, and we find it right here in the Sermon on the Mount. So in the weeks that are to come, as we walk through this passage, you will be a prime candidate for the disciple-making process because we're going to talk about what Jesus has commanded us to do. Um, how about this uh, always with us? Where do we find this even in the Sermon on the Mount? Really, this is quite beautiful, these passive verbs. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Who's going to comfort them? Blessed are, verse 6, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Who's going to fill them? Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Who's going to show them mercy? The answer is Jesus is. Because he's always with us. Now there's a question about this last one, all nations. We're going to have to think about this. We're going to think carefully about it. Here's why. Jesus is in ancient Israel. He's talking. He's in Palestine. He's talking to the Jews. He's talking to them about a blessed sort of life that God approves. And he appeals quite a bit here to the law of Moses. The law of Moses that God gave specifically to the Jewish people, uh, the Israelite people. We have a different relationship as Gentile Christians to the law of Moses than the Jewish Christians did. So how are we going to work this out, this all nations part? We're going to work it out some other time, not this morning. We'll come back to that part. Uh, Jesus, this, the, but the main point here of, of why did Matthew write this? Jesus is God's teacher. Jesus is God's spokesman. Jesus is God's prophet. And here in this teaching is the main case where Matthew makes the case that Jesus speaks for God. That's how it works in Matthew. We could, we could spend time and it would be profitable looking microscopically at the Sermon on the Mount and consider it phrase by phrase. We could do that and it would be very profitable. Um, I, I, we did something like it in 2004, I preached through the Sermon on the Mount. For those of you here, you remember those sermons, I'm sure, so I won't want to repeat those. It was only 16 years ago, so I'm sure they're right in the tip of your tongue. Um, we could do that. I'm afraid a little bit of losing the forest of the book of Matthew in the trees of the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to move through it at a at a decent pace because we're thinking about Matthew's message. But uh, let's finish, though, this morning by considering third here, the blessed life. What is the blessed life? There's point one of there already. The blessed life. These are, in, in this 
Jesus introduces the Sermon on the Mount with these lines, these poetic, repetitive lines that unveil these values that are going to be, that he's going to explain and expand upon in the next several chapters. Um, to be blessed in the Bible means to have God's approval, to be pleasing to him. And the Old Testament has several references to living a blessed life. Psalm 1.1, blessed is the person who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the seat of the mockers. That's a blessed life, a, a, an approved by God life. But I think there's actually even more here in this passage. The word blessed in Jesus' day was used to describe, um, in particular, the island of Cyprus. Cyprus was the blessed isle. I'm sure since you've all been to Cyprus, I know you know why Cyprus is the blessed isle. Cyprus is the blessed isle because it has on it everything you would need to live. It's got beautiful pasture land. It's got wonderful farmland. It's got temperate weather. It's a, just a wonderful place. Cyprus is the blessed isle because it has everything you would need to live a sustained, satisfied life. And Jesus, when he stands and says, blessings, 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 he's saying to us, this is the life of which God approves. And because God's opinion matters more to us than anything else, if we have God's approval, we are satisfied. That's enough for us. It doesn't matter about the circumstances that we encounter. It doesn't matter what other people think. If I have God's approval, that is enough for me to be satisfied and sustained. That's what Jesus is talking about here. What are the values he has in mind? Eight descriptors. Let me summarize them with three um, hooks to hang our thoughts on. These, um, what sort of life is the blessed life? First, the blessed life means acknowledging your need. Acknowledging your need. You can see that in the early Beatitudes in particular. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, if you think about financial poverty, if we could think about financial poverty, it means that you don't have enough money to meet your needs, to be poor. Uh, there's things that you need that you just can't afford. Food, clothing, shelter. You're poor. You don't have enough to meet your needs. Well, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means that you don't have the spiritual resources to meet the life that God has called you to live. You don't have the spiritual strength, you don't have the spiritual desires, you don't have the inclinations to do what God has called you to do. This life, though, it's, it's worse, though, your problem, my problem is worse than just having not enough resources. My problem is that I'm in a deficit. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. It's not that I'm neutral before God and just can't, just can't meet his standards. It's that I have turned from him and have worked against him in my thoughts and my words and my attitudes and my actions. And, and Jesus calls us here to a mournful life over that. I was listening yesterday to a lecture by Kyle Strobel. He delivered it a couple of years ago. It was a recording. And, and he was talking about uh, this sort of life 
Think about it. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve in the garden disobey God. He tells them not to eat fruit. They eat the fruit. They disobey him. And when God comes to walk in the garden with them in the evening, what do they do? They hide. They hide from him. How much better, how much truer to the character of God that they should have known would it have been for Adam and Eve, instead of running and hiding, for Adam and Eve to say, Oh good, God is here. He'll know what to do. He'll know what to do with this mess that we've made. He'll know what to do with the fact that we have disobeyed him. He'll, he'll fix this. He'll do something to help us. Wouldn't it have been so much better for them, so much more in character with, with who God is for them to run to him for rescue than to hide from him in shame. And, and Jesus, when he says, blessings on you who are poor in spirit, blessings on you who are mourn, mourn he, is, he is saying, come for help, come for help. God will know what to do. God will know what to do with the mess that we have made of this life. As Matthew unfolds, of course, we, we see that God knows what to do. God has the answer. God is the answer. He sends his son to be our sin bearer, paying the penalty for our sin on the cross, dying and rising again and ascending into heaven and offering life and forgiveness to all who turn to him by faith. God will know what to do. We lift up to him empty hands that he might fill them. We acknowledge our need. This is being poor in spirit. This is mourning. This is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Now, secondly, what does the blessed life mean? The blessed life means adopting new values, adopting new values. So the beginning of the Beatitudes are kind of more inward looking. I'm mourning. I recognize my poverty of spirit. As the Beatitudes unfold, though, they kind of look more outward, don't they? Verse 7, blessed are the merciful. Blessed 9, verse 9, are the peacemakers. We're looking out more. You do these things and you will be evidently on God's side and living a sort of countercultural life. The world, especially at this point in time, doesn't value mercy, does it? At any point in time, if you've ever had a wrong opinion about anything or anybody in your employ has ever done anything that might be at all suspect, you don't deserve mercy. You need to be fired. You need to be canceled. You need to be removed from culture completely. There's no mercy. No mercy. You shouldn't be making peace right now. This is not a time for peace. This is a time for protest, for shouting at people, for condemning them. This is not the time for peacemaking. It's time for us to be angry with one another. Right? Peacemakers, that's countercultural, isn't it? This is what followers of Jesus do. This is how followers of Jesus post. We post to make peace. It's countercultural. Pursuing purity is inconvenient. People around you won't like it because you will make them feel bad and you make them feel guilty and you will inconvenience for uh, their life. Uh, you, You start following rules that other people don't like and that bother them, being pure at heart. And so what happens? Insults, false accusations, persecution, We should remember what verse 11 says. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 
We followers of Jesus, some of us are really good at um, inciting people to insult us because we're jerks and not for Jesus' sake. There's a difference, right? Adopting new values. Third, the blessed life means anticipating a new world. Anticipating a new world. There's a new world that's coming and we who are followers of Jesus are living for it. It's the world in which the meek will inherit the earth, the pure in heart will see God, and the persecuted will have a great reward. We long for that world to come. We recognize this world is more like an airport waiting lounge than the vacation destination. Here we are. We're waiting for that world to come. We're longing for that world to come, but we're not at that world. We live for that other world. We don't live for this world. We're anticipating it. And here are the sort of values that mark that anticipation. Here's Jesus' opening salvo. This is where he begins. All of these values are going to come back again in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to see these things uh, materialize again in the words that Jesus says. Remember as we begin, God is is honored by the lifted hand. God fills the empty, lifted hand, and therein lies the blessed life. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and we are thankful to you for the Lord Jesus, our great Savior, your great teacher, the one who, when he spoke, wow, Listen to him and what he has to say. They were astounded by him. Lord, I do pray that in the weeks that are to come, you would take this very familiar passage and that you would stun us with its authority and stun us with its exactness and carefulness and rightness and goodness that we might render unto you all the allegiance of which the Lord Jesus is worthy. Father, we come with empty hands to you because even from the beginning we recognize we are unable to do what you have called us to do on our own strength. Lord, I do pray that you would work in our lives as we read this passage to make us peacemaking, merciful, pure, um, uh, gentle, wise people. Transform us in that regard. Do that for your sake and through the power that is ours through your Son, by the Spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.